0: Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast, brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley.
1: And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more.
0: In today's episode, we are joined by cornea and surface disease expert, Dr. Joanne Shen. Dr. Shen shares her insights for managing dry eye patients, including new and emerging treatments, and walks us through the management of severe surface disease in settings like graft-versus-host disease.
1: Dr. Joanne Shen is a cornea and anterior segment specialist at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona, where she also serves as department chair. We're gonna be speaking about surface disease today, and she has meaningful leadership roles in that field. She is the director of the Dry Eye Clinic at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. She's active nationally with the American Academy of Ophthalmology Cornea and Anterior Segment Ophthalmic Technology Assessment Subcommittee the International Ocular Graph versus Host Consensus Group, and the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society. Welcome, Dr. Shen.
2: Thank you. It's such an honor to be here with you today. We are so happy
0: to have you here today. You are a cornea anterior segment guru. Take us through how you've developed a niche in dry eye patients, anterior segment patients. How have you developed this specialty practice?
2: You know, certainly when I came to Arizona, I knew I was going to the land of dry eye, but I didn't realize what was going to happen until I showed up. And so when you're at the Mayo Clinic and you're in the desert, then that means you're going to get all these seventh opinion dry eyes. So it became my niche, even though I wasn't really looking for that in particular. And my mentor is Bill Bourne. And still occasionally talk to him from time to time, but about 10 years ago, started working with him on trying to figure out what my niche was. And really he said, you know, we don't know stuff about GVHD. You know, our patients are living longer after transplant. So maybe you should start looking at your population and share what you know. And we were getting lots of dry eye patients that didn't have any solutions. And there was a lot of really interesting things happening about that time in 2012 and fortunate to have some technology that we could acquire. So it sort of came to me because of a necessity. Either I got good at it or I was gonna have to find some other occupation.
1: It's interesting that you say that it came to me out of necessity. Most ophthalmologists feel that any patient with dry eye comes to them out of necessity, and we'd really rather not see them. (laughs) So it's phenomenal that you've appreciated that need and risen to the occasion and advanced the care and now a thought leader in this field. So uh, it's exciting to share this time with you and just talk through lessons and tips that you have over basic management and then things that are, you know, kind of new and cutting edge to help these complex patients. Share with us just a little bit because so many people do see patients with run-of-the-mill dryness, mebumin gland dysfunction, chronic irritation with age, or and we'll talk about sort of some of the more advanced diseases here in a minute that are associated with dryness, but share some thoughts over when a patient comes in the, your exam room with dry eye symptomatology. What are the common questions you make sure you ask? And what are the things in the exam you make sure you do that you'd encourage the comprehensive ophthalmologist listening to do too?
2: I think it's important to remember that I'm not seeing the typical dry eye patient. Rarely am I getting a, oh, I've had it for three months usually they've been battling it for a while. So maybe what I I do is not going to be typical for the comprehensive person seeing. But if you've been seeing somebody for a while and not gotten anywhere, I really delve into what their lifestyle is and what their occupation is and when is the dryness the worst? Because, you know, I find out that they have been bicycling without glasses in Arizona or any protective wear and they are having problems. I definitely need to address that. Or if they are waking up in the morning and their eyes feel the worst in the day, that's a question that has not been asked before, but I think is this typical ceiling fan question. We ask about ceiling fans, but we don't say, well, so if they're not using a ceiling fan, but yet they're waking up in the morning and their eyes feel terrible or pretty bad, then I am concerned. So I definitely feel like focusing on that aspect of the restorative nighttime, that's the only time our eyes get to rest and regenerate is nighttime. So I think finding a little bit more about, are they a computer programmer on the, on the computer 12 hours a day? Are they in the right refractive prescription? Are they in their computer glasses? Those are basic questions that sometimes are missed, especially, you know, in our late 40s, patient comes in late 40s and not wearing glasses at the computer. So they don't, these are not rocket science questions. In addition, every cornea external disease specialist would say a thorough exam. And it's hard when you're given five minutes to do your whole slit lamp exam. Are you going to take the time to flip the lids? Are you going to use lissamine green stain, which is very messy, are you going to look for foreign bodies or just examine the ocular surface instead of just diving right in to look at the cataract?
0: Yeah, I think those are all such good points. And I love that you're kind of coming back to the history as being so important because these patients are really unique. And at least I found in my oculoplastics practice when I'm thinking about the lids and thinking about excess tearing. That's what I see the most. And a lot of times it's dryness. It's not a one size fits all. They're all super different. And there's so many different causes. Dr. Shen, one thing that I always feel like I'm behind the curve on is some of the workup and testing modalities we have for dry eye. Talk to me about do you do Shermer testing or tear film osmolarity or inflammatory markers in the tear film like MMP type thing? I'm always hearing about this, but I haven't incorporated any of that in my practice. Do you recommend that like what's your basic tearing um, or dry eye workup?
2: I think it's important to try to figure out you know for my practice they they're coming from far away. I try to get as much done, but that is virtually impossible in a in a comprehensive practice. You know, generally, I feel like the tools that we have, like tear osmolarity, really just sort of confirms what we already sort of know. You know, if it's evaporative tearing, then they have reflex tearing uh, as a response. Then their tear osmolarity is going to be low. I do it to confirm what I've already suspected. Rarely am I surprised. MMP9, I think, is helpful if you're trying to decide about doing oral doxycycline or topical azithromycin. The patient has a lot of maybe telangiectasias, more of the ocular rosacea look, and you're trying to decide if you're going to add that to the plan. Because we know that there are side effects in cost and difficulty getting topical azithromycin. There was a supply chain issue for a while. And trying to add that and explain to the patient why you're doing that, it helps to have some data to show them. And then I like to repeat it three months after I've done the, some treatment to see if we've had some at least qualitative differences. Because we can kind of see... Something, sometimes MMP9 testing is very, very positive. It's just lights up and sometimes it's very faint. And we do sort of write that down because sometimes we can, if we can get it to be a little more faint, sometimes that correlates with symptoms for the patient. That's actually really
0: helpful. Sorry, for these are really basic questions. And a lot of this is just because I don't have the knowledge base. Is MMP also indicative of inflammatory disease? And does that help you decide if you want to use an anti-inflammatory like Restasis or Zydra or any of these other n- newer agents? Or are there different testing that are more specific for those treatments?
2: No. And I don't think there's any data that says that this is what you do and this is what has been proven. So right. I want to just preface that whether or not a person decides to use MMP9 in that way, I do think that, yes, the underlying inflammatory etiology for these patients is something you want to look for for treatment modalities such as these topical laphitagrass and cyclosporin, and whether or not you decide to incorporate
1: I mean, I think most of us are used to managing dry eye to a certain level of lubrication and lid scrubs and warm compresses or whatever people might have from their residency and their previous practice training. Share with us beyond the norm, what's your algorithm of I'm going to try this next as you go up the ladder for your a dry eye patient that's already failed all that stuff. Or they come in with their bag of all their lubricants and they just want the next thing up the chain and I know there's some you know these newer treatments that are becoming available but besides education and look at environmental things as you've talked about and heard their story what do you pull out of your tool trick first second third and and what are your thoughts and why that way yeah tell us all your secrets
2: (laughs) I don't have any tricks and honestly if they pull in the whole bag I'm like, okay, maybe we should just do a medication holiday. Let me just see what natural looks like. Obviously, at my stage, if I'm seeing them after months of what things have been going on or years, sometimes the treatments that they have piled on have actually started to cause some toxicity to the ocular surface. And I can't figure out, are they just washing away tears? We used to, in training, say, okay, if they're not good, preservative-free tears every hour. And then if they're really not good, then tears every 30 minutes. And then if that, you just can escalate. And over the years, you know, I've been at Mayo in Arizona now for about 15 years. I really have just backed off on that because I feel like they're almost washing away their own natural tears. And, and we all know what's in those bottles is nothing biologic that we would naturally have occurring. So unfortunately, I don't have, if, if I did, I probably could have a robot do the dry eye clinic because then they could just give out the instructions. If a patient comes to me and he's in a wheelchair and he's with his wife and I can tell he's not going to be getting up to the shower very often, someone like that, you have to make it easy. So, you know, I may just say, you know, some AcuSoft lid swipes or some of that variety where it's commercially easy. You don't have to get a patient in the shower. It's kind of messy trying to baby shampoo in a wheelchair. So realistic, based on the patient, most patients come to me, their eyelids are already very clean, sometimes super clean. And some of these hypochlorous acid wipes are nice to, and sprays are nice to sort of cut down on the dander if patients can implement. Yeah. So that's a nice added tool to our toolbox now. I love the hypochlorous acid
0: sprays. I tell everybody to use Avanova Mm. as my favorite thing ever. I think it's so great. I just have to add a little tidbit. It's like my new favorite thing.
2: Yeah, and I really like it that I rarely see people react to it. Yeah. You know, I've looked at a lot of very allergenic patients and the eyelid skin's very thin. So you have to be really careful not to overdo it. And people sometimes take scrubbing to the nth degree. Well, if a little is good, let me just go crazy. And then they start irritating the protective cuticle of the skin, right? Or whatever that, Dr. Tooley, you know better. But, you know, honestly, it cannot take that much cleaning. So you got to be careful not scrubbing away. Vital epithelium.
1: Talking about agents that you might choose uh, they, for meibomian gland dysfunction, it's meaningful that you're going to use an oral agent, and doxycycline. Or in my, I have a pediatric practice that I'll use clarithromycin. One of the things that I've found, or you've seen variation on, of how long people will treat to supplement or kind of reboot the surface health how long to treat with some of those. Some people give a course for two weeks and other people do it for two months and taper. Thoughts on that and and when you you choose a longer agent or shorter agent from an oral antibiotic perspective?
2: When you're talking about shorter... Agent, what were you referring to?
1: Well, shorter duration. So I just, prescribing antibiotics for two months is something that a lot of ophthalmologists may hesitate to prescribe longer acting. And yet, at least in my population, when a, a child comes in with blepharitis of meaningful degree and surface disease and corneal changes, I'm sort of under the understanding that I'll be tapering an oral medicine over many, many weeks. And oftentimes it goes beyond two months. But how common is that or uncommon in prescribing longer courses? And how would you encourage a comprehensive ophthalmologist that's going to prescribe doxy or clarithromycin? What's a typical regimen to try?
2: You know, if a patient comes in and they're about average build, at my standard dose is like 100 milligrams of doxycycline. And depending on which high I like, but monohydrate formula, sometimes all that's available to a patient, I think I try either it really is a tolerability. Most of the time, I have some patients who could probably take it forever. They're the minority. Many patients are intolerant. They get a UTI or yeast infection. Um, They don't feel well. They have problems digesting. They love dairy. They can't have it with this antibiotic. They're scared of side effects. They're scared of long-term antibiotics. So the myriad of excuses comes. I just say, let's try it for a month. And if we have any sort of indicator that things just feel calmer and less irritated, gritty, dry, my exam sort of is consistent with that, then I will have them finish a three-month. And then depending on how they did, if there was any tolerability issues, I generally will give them a three-month break. I feel like it stays in our system for a while. And then just reassess, do I need to pulse them later? Otherwise, if they fail to taper off completely, they may be a candidate for a smaller dose, a smaller dose or the same dose every other day. So we just play around with it depending on how the patient is doing. I like
0: that a lot. That's great advice and and very customizable. I don't see this as much with patients that I put on doxycycline, but I don't know if you guys have ever taken doxycycline. I took it as a malaria prophylaxis a couple years ago and had the most intense sun sensitivity. Mm-hmm. It was unbelievable. I don't see this as much with our patients. I think it's because of a slightly lower dose, but w- I was on a beach and I had to wrap my body, my hands especially, my hands were so sensitive, in cold washcloths to go outside because I felt like my skin was on fire. Yes. It was crazy. And so I really commiserate with patients. I don't know if I would want to be on it long term, but I think it's that's less of a side effect, but I just always think of that from when I had to take it. It's it's, everything changes when you're in the patient's seat, you know? One thing, Dr. Shen, I want to ask you about is IPL, laser options, LipaFlow, kind of these new tech options for dry eye that are super popular. I think some people were, were skeptical of things like LipaFlow. I've actually seen great data from IPL, and you were one of the first to publish on this. And so tell us about using IPL and other kind of high-tech options for ocular rosacea, dry eye, lid disease, those kinds of things.
2: It's been exciting in just the developments and the tension towards dry eye and intense pulse. light. I was skeptical. It really was out of a necessity, uh, out of born out of necessity. You know, patients had exhausted everything else. And had we given up on meibomian glands or were we going to try this? And I have Loyal patients who want it, like it, come back for it. And it's not the most comfortable procedure. So, you know, I've done some limited pilot studies where I just did expression only versus IPL with expression, and patients still like their IPL. I and of course it's very hard to mask because it is a very unique experience. You can't really f- fake it because they can actually feel the intense light hitting their skin. So Unfortunately, many of the studies in the literature are industry-funded because not a lot of people are spending the time doing IPL research, and the people who are doing it are sometimes in private practice, and they don't have time to publish their results on what their patients are experiencing. I generally like to use IPL if patients are good responders to doxycycline, but just become very intolerant. You know, they're too sun sensitive. They can't handle the GI side effects, some other issue. And it has been nice if they respond well to doxycycline and just can't tolerate it. They generally, in my experience, have responded. We have not done a prospective study where we've sort of done a head-to-head doxycycline versus IPL. Lipoflow and ILux and those other sort of just massaging only treatments aren't covered by insurance. I think they're very safe and can only help. There's very low risk, unlike IPL, where if you don't do it properly and you uh, accidentally subject IPL to the iris and internal eye, you can actually cause severe uveitis and damage and vision loss. So we want to avoid that. But These other mybomian gland automated expression or sort of semi-automated manual expressions, I think are very helpful in just sort of decompressing these glands that get backed up to keep them moving.
1: So in a normal practice, a patient comes in and goes through the, the treatment algorithms or care and you find you're ready for that. Is, are those procedures being formed same day or are they rescheduled? And then, at what frequency is a typical patient having those repeated? For someone that my dry eye patients or my adult strabismus patients that really come in thinking they're double visions because of strabismus, and I send them back to say, we need more dry eye care. But so just not being someone that manages those things, share with us how your practice manages that, those procedures and in what frequency?
2: Many of my patients are waiting three months to get in. So I try to have time to treat them at that first visit. If they're a candidate for flow or, and that's what I have for thermal pulsation or intense pulse light, then I actually will do it at that visit. And then for intense pulse light, it's actually a series of monthly treatments. And it's a series of four spread every four to six weeks if they improve 100%, then we're we're done after the first treatment, but that's rare. Most of the time, patients will need three to four treatments to sort of get to a plateaued effect. If they don't respond by the third treatment, we sort of move on to other modalities because I don't know if we're going to achieve anything. And obviously, they have to have viable mybomian glands. Before I do any of these treatments, I'm doing a mybography, which is just flipping the lids and using infrared photography, which is now pretty widely available in multiple platforms to look at the mybomian glands and make sure there is something to save before we go on these expensive treatment and time consuming. For lipoflow, I think it depends on their patients. It can be anywhere from probably six to 12 months before we do a repeat, assuming that they've got an effect after eight weeks. Usually they'll be better after eight weeks of treatment, eight weeks after their lipoflow treatment.
0: That's really helpful to know. I think the other thing that comprehensivists who are seeing these patients might be deciding is when to invest in these platforms, you know, LipaFlow, getting an intense pulse light laser, these are really expensive investments in a practice. You're chair of the Department of Ophthalmology, so you understand the overhead and these investments. Do you think with technology and where this is going and how we're treating these patients that these are wise investments for practices and how might a comprehensivist make that decision of when to incorporate some of these platforms into their practice?
2: That's a really good question. I mean, some practices have made it so that the provider comes in and puts the actuators in for the lipoflow and has a technician monitor and then remove them and then have the patient sit for a cornea check, just to make sure the cornea is not abraded. But you want to offer these services because you feel like it's going to make a difference in helping, you're addressing what your patients are asking for, right? You're not just doing them to make money. I'm sure there's other ways to, you could sell glasses and make money. You don't necessarily have to embrace this, but if you do decide to do it, then you sort of own all of it. What are you going to do with the ones that don't respond? The ones that are angry that they spent hundreds to thousands of dollars on Lipoflow. You really have to have an idea of who are you going to partner with for these ones that don't respond and aren't getting better. You know, looking for other ocular surface disease that may be also impacting the patient's
1: On that note, I'd like to transition a little bit because part of your expertise has grown and and matured in in light of other ocular disease affecting your treatments. Share with us a little bit about graft-versus-host disease or other surface conditions that are rich in your practice that we could learn from. Mayo's certainly has a unique tertiary quaternary referral location with transplants being done at high levels, and so you see patients with complex Graph versus host situations, and I just know that's an expertise of yours. So share with us how that practice is the same or different in managing their surface disease.
2: Back in training, I alluded to before, back in probably 2000, many patients who got stem cell transplants for leukemia and lymphoma basically died if they got ocular GVHD. The mortality was quite high. We didn't have antifungals that were effective that we do now. And so by the time I came out of fellowship and was in practice at Mayo, you know, we started seeing people fortunately survive, you know, they survived their transplant, they survived their cancer, and now their transplants were working really well and their eyes were feeling terrible and their quality of life was just miserable. I don't think in training, we really had good experience because these patients were so sick. You know, they will not live very many months, and so you never had to get good at this. And what I've come to understand is, and what we didn't back then, is that I sort of treat these patients like once they're through their initial GVHD attack, is they're like Stevens-Johnson's patients, not as severe, but quite scarred, quite aqueous deficient. And our group showed that they're also my booming glands were atrophied, and really much of the ocular surface was affected. I would get patients, you know, I was told you just use steroids on them, you immune suppress them. If they're symptomatic, it's an immune attack. But really what I've come to realize is that they're just super dry. And so now, just like I would with a Sjogren's patient or a Stevens-Johnson's patients who's through the initial phase and now it's three months out, is really working on rebuilding the ocular surface with uh, the tear film was just missing. I got desperate to a point. I even tried running IPL on the series of patients and ran a prospective trial where I actually was doing IPL on patients. And IPL does not work for GVHD, I just want to make that quite clear, but it was interesting because I saw these patients intensively for the six-month study, and I soon realized their GVHD, there was one eye that was worse than the other, after hearing them complain about how bad their eyes were despite this miracle IPL that had shown up, and we we were so hoping that it would help. I realized that they really just needed punctal occlusion. So it's not very glamorous, but I am very aggressive about punctal occlusion for these patients. And I have seen a lot of patients do much better just with punctal occlusion. So if they come to me and they've been treated with a lot of topical steroids, generally I'll try to say, let's just work on your tear foam and tone back the steroids, which probably aren't helping with wound healing. Those are all really good tips and super challenging patients to treat.
0: Is there a point where you have to flip to surgical options or anything different? I'm always thinking of this from an oculoplastics standpoint, or when do you need a tarsorophy, or when do you just need to occlude these patients completely to let the surface heal versus just doing medical management?
2: I definitely am very aggressive with medical management, but I do. I, if you call punctal cautery surgical, I implement that pretty quickly. I'll try plugs first. I use a three month dissolvable because I don't want any silicone flange on the ocular surface, rubbing on the already irritated surface. We do autologous serum tears. Moisture chambers are very important to protect the ocular surface. Unfortunately, they're not covered by insurance. And then without scleral lenses, I'm not sure how good of a cornea specialist I would be. I do a lot of combined scleral lenses and moisture chambers just to protect the ocular surface from the Arizona desert. My goal is to be aggressive so they don't show up with a neurotrophic ulcer because then that sort of leads to a transplant, and once they've had a transplant, they don't have great feeling, they don't make good tears, and then that's a disaster ready to happen. And I, you know, knock on, would like to avoid doing tarsorophy on them. So if I can get them into a scleral lens, get those serum tears installed so they can have some tears to substitute what they don't have, um, I find that you know, they, these patients are able to go back to work and have productive lives.
0: Yeah, we're so lucky at Mayo that we have the ability to get scleral lenses for our patients. I use them a lot too, and I really love scleral lenses. They're such a good option for patients. I actually don't know what the landscape of scleral lens therapy looks like in private practice. What, How easy is it for comprehensivists to get them made, get them fitted for their patients? I think
2: 10 years ago it was tough. Now we have, I think the optometry community is definitely learned in the last 10 years. And now the technology between Pentacam imaging and working with these centers that make the scleral lenses, they're just have gotten so good at troubleshooting fits for, and generally these patients are fairly normal in their fit. You're not dealing with a very abnormal shaped cornea. The conjunctiva may be a little bit scarred, but most of what you're using on the scleral lenses that's sitting on the sclera is normal. So the community now has a lot more support that I think that most people know who's the regional specialist in their area.
0: Yeah, that's so great. That's such a wonderful option. What do you think about Procara or those other types of options? I don't use those
2: in my practice. I had difficulty having patients tolerate Procara. I probably don't utilize amniotic membrane a whole lot because I just haven't had to. I I think that some people like to use it just as early first line. But for me, it's like, okay, which eye is worse? I'm going to do one eye at a time. I can't do both. So I generally like some of these other modalities first. If they look like they're about to do an ulcer on me, then, then I will employ that. But I generally will use some of these Bandage, soft contact lens-enabled discs that they have available that are easier to use, easier to store, and tolerate for the patients.
1: Well, this has been wonderfully enlightening. And sharing I think I always like these podcasts that are very tangible. Mm-hmm. Like whether it's a simple punctal plug discussion versus some of these new, you know, LipaFlow and what's new on the market and how to incorporate in practices. Thank you for sharing virtually your expertise with us on a common condition that gets really tough. And we celebrate the expertise you have here at Mayo and the ability to share your voice on our podcast.
0: Agreed. Thank you so much. This was great. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology podcast on our website.
1: Thank you for listening. And we definitely look forward to sharing more.